Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and welcome to Drive-by Cinema, the cookware review show where we look at pans <laughs> for at least 10 minutes with my co-host Paul. Hi. Also, we obsess over triangularly based films. Yes, I should say that joke will only make any sense if you listen to any of the last three or four episodes. All available to download right now. And in the future. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's how podcasts work. It is. It's amazing. It's amazing stuff. Thank you, Spotify. No, we are the Cliff Notes or something, the exam sheet, the AI summary of movies that you may or may not wish to watch for yourself. <laughs> it's been debated whether we actually exist anymore or we had invested in some AI to copy our voices and to produce a rambling verbatim text that approaches to what we would say. Yeah, no machine could make this stuff for them. I think we're okay. Oh, we're okay on that for the time being. Well, let's find out. Let's maybe slip one of those fake episodes in. Well, last week we watched a movie called Triangle. Triangle, yes. Not Triangle of Sadness, which we've watched before. Yeah, that's a bit different. Also on a boat. That's true. There were some connections. But I wanted to ask you, and I regret that I didn't at the time. How did you watch it? What streaming service did you use? Don't know. You don't know? You can't can't remember? I think I paid for it twice, so I paid for it. So it must have been YouTube. You paid for it? Twice, what? <laughs> yeah, I think I started it with a, like seven days to go before a self-imposed deadline. They got <laughs> distracted and then watched it maybe a day before our deadline instead. Right, okay. Well, that's good because that means I can gloat twice over then because I watched it for free. On? Freeview. On Plex.tv. Ah. Which I'm sure you could have watched it for free on as well because you have an account on my Plex.tv server. It was also on Freeview. Also on Freeview, Paul. Yeah, so, so you did use Just Watch to find out. So why did you pay for it, you lunatic? Or did you want it in high def or something? Don't know. Oh, he's feeling, he's feeling cornered, hectored. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. You probably enjoyed it more than I did because you paid for it, didn't you? You tend just, to value things. I don't want to stray into engaging temporarily with streaming services I forget to cancel. Although I know that yeah, Plex but, is free on your behalf. I was going to say, yeah, but it's free, you know. <laughs> but Daniel's book, what's it? Type 1, Type 2 Thinking. When you're just engaging with that Just Watch front page, you, you're looking for the reliables, aren't you? Which is... All right, well, when, well, I'll tell you what the disadvantage of watching it on Plex.tv and presumably Freeview was, and that is that I had to have adverts. Oh. Perhaps you don't care about that. I don't. I mean, like, Freeview is now splattering itself across Amazon Prime, isn't it? So I've been watching quite a lot on Freeview recently. I don't find their adverts that intrusive or or that voluminous, to be honest with you. See, there was a period a few years ago where I'd stopped watching broadcast television, really. Mm -hmm. I was watching Netflix and I was watching quite a lot of YouTube. And there was many years where I didn't experience adverts at all. No. Uh, You know, three or four years at least, I think. I was really getting used to an advert-free Oh, are lifestyle. you on YouTube Red? No, but YouTube barely had adverts at that point a few years ago. They'd started putting adverts on the website and stuff. They were usually at the front. Right. So that you could quickly get past them, quickly skip them. Almost all of them were skippable. And I had lots of Chromecasts plugged into TVs and stuff. And I think when you bought a Chromecast at the start... Because you probably because you paid thirty five quid for your Chromecast, I don't know, but they weren't often playing it the adverts. Obviated the need for adverts, yeah. When you streamed, 
So I, I lived advert-free in a blissful kind of bubble of my own for a while. Didn't know what products were available. Have you ever watched ITVX, their attempt at a streaming service? ITVX? Is that a late-night channel? Do you watch it after? No, it's, it's their dark. BBC iPlayer. It's soft their, pornography. Their, their attempt at a Austin Maxi of an, a stream streaming site. Were those notes from Elon Musk, were they? Let me just Got see a great if they've changed your streaming service. Let me just see if they've changed it. No, um, I'm sure it's the same. Why, Paul? Are you saying well, they didn't Well, happen? no, because, I mean, the thing is, advert density is lower in streaming, sense, streaming services than it is in regular hard-baked broadcast services, isn't it? I mean, and of course, UK or European advertising content is, is lesser than American amounts of advertising on, on standard prices right into your front room kind of broadcasting. So in America, what is it 15 minutes every 60 minutes of, of adverts? Sorry, 15 minutes of adverts every 60 minutes of broadcast, yeah. Here in the UK, I think it's sort of 11 to 12, isn't it? I think it's capped at 12. Yeah, it's, it's noticeably less, isn't it? America is absolutely nuts, isn't it? Because, yeah. I mean, often what happens in America is you get the cold open of the show... And then you get the credits, and then you get the adverts. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but ITVX, in their wisdom, they've decided to continue yeah. that advert density on their streaming service. So I tune in once a year to watch the Tour de France religiously, and unfortunately you get, you know, 12 minutes of adverts every hour, and it doesn't work, does it, on a streaming service like that? Particularly as you're conditioned to expect about three minutes or four minutes every hour, and to find that pretty cumbersome anyway. When you say you were streaming religiously, does that mean you're watching kneeling on a on a hassock or something? And sniffing like Rian. I see. That's a painful <laughs> image. I mean, adverts have become more intrusive on YouTube as well, actually to the point of making you crazy, really, in some cases. Mm-hmm. Unskippable it's- adverts. The worst one, though, I found is Channel 4's streaming player. Yes. Because you have to watch a certain amount of adverts before it starts the stream. Correct. And then, of ITVX course, you get the same, yeah. yeah. You, you get it as you play the thing. Okay, if you just want to watch something and be done. But if you want to stop, pause, come back later, pick up where you left off... You have to watch them again. You have to, <laughs> you have to watch the initial adverts. Yeah. And then it's sort of... If you're three quarters of the way through, you have to watch like each advert break, I think. You have to watch your requisite number of ad breaks Correct. before That's, you get yeah. to the bit you're at. It's infuriating, especially if... You must service... watch at least one advert every 12 minutes that you've logged, yes. yeah. And if the streaming service that you're on like keeps breaking down or stopping for one reason or another, mm-hmm. or the app keeps crashing, you keep having to go back in, or it's the same bloody advert. You're absolutely right, yeah. yeah. Going from a state, as I say, of blissful ad-less existence to a state where I see the same advert for the same product uh, sort of a million times. And by the way, clever marketing here and well done, guys. I'm watching a lot of pan adverts now. I don't know, I don't know why that would be. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of infuriating. But no, I mean, ITVX and Channel 4, also what they do is they don't just do a 30-second ad. They do a whole two-minute or two-and-a-half-minute break, you know. And that's just not how streaming works, is it? Okay, Google, I, okay, they do require you to watch, I think, at least. It depends on how they've monetized or how they valued the, if it's, you know, high quality or, or low revenue kind of stuff you're watching. But it's up to six minutes per hour, isn't it? But you can skip them. 
And then thought if you skip the first half hour, you get more to watch towards the end. Whereas, you know, these traditional broadcasters, they, they, it's just rigid. You have to watch it and you can't get by. I mean, at one point I was, li- I was literally skipping back in Tour de France to watch something. This was three or four years ago before they made their app a little more sophisticated. I was skipping back and I got banned from the whole, uh, I got banned <laughs> from the whole, the whole website because they assumed that I was trying to skip adverts. And they sent me a rather haughty sort of note before they closed me down saying, it looks like you're trying to avoid watching our adverts. You can no longer participate on ITV. Got in trouble because they were stopping people using ad blockers. Uh, right, but then I think they re- reversed that technical change because I think they lost so many viewers or something. I'm not sure, but look, these services have got to pay somehow, right? So I guess Correct. it's understandable that they have advertisers. If you're not paying in some sort of way, somebody else is paying on your behalf. On your behalf, because you're giving them something. Your eyeballs, your attention. Potentially, yeah. I know. Do you think ad blockers are immoral? What do you think? Should people be comfortable ad blocking services that they're using? Why, why would it's not immoral, is it? I mean, is it not immoral? Is it, is it immoral like to walk Steven? out during the break on you know conventional linear TV and make yourself a cuppa? Not really. Hmm. I see what you're saying. And now you've mentioned that, Paul. I'm feeling that we need a short break with music. When we come back, whilst I'm getting a drink, Paul will describe the. The movie we're about to watch. After this exciting new musical break. And I'm back in the room, Paul. In... Thank you for pointing out, by the way, that Sainsbury's are selling Baileys to... Nectar card holders for only £10. £3 cheaper than the club card holders at Tesco. Mm. And only £1.05 more expensive than the Aldi knockoff. I see you've done your research. (laughs) Now, I like the fact you can call the weird, wacky aisle in Lidl, Lidl Middle. (laughs) But I think Aldi needs to come up with, you know, in calling the Caterpillar spirit, they need to come up with a similarly rhyming phrase for their middle aisle now, don't they? Talking of weird, wacky aisles... Brings us to the subject of this week's movie. Yes, we definitely went on a wacky bent, didn't we? To a weird aisle. What is the name of this movie, Paul? Right, okay. Not to freak people out, but it's called Nandor, Fodor, and the Talking Mongoose. 2023 film based on a true story. Off the press. Were you familiar with the story of Jeff the Talking Mongoose, Paul? No, no, I'm not. I am now, I guess, a little familiar. I think it's quite close to the actual story, but not... Totally. I'll try and point out. I'll try and flag post. Thank you. Flag post, signpost where it might have gone astray. The reason that I'm familiar with this story is when I was a kid and I was into the kind of esoteric, weird and supernatural and paranormal stuff. Can I just say something, Richard? You, you came to my house once when we were both much younger and you left a book called The Green Stone and I still have it. Wow, you've got The Green Stone. I have. Do you want okay. it back? be handy, yep. Anyway, the thing about... Uh, don't read it. It'd just be embarrassing. Okay. (laughs) The thing about the kind of unexplained books that collected lots of reports of ghosts and UFO sightings and stuff, it would have, you know, Rendlesham and someone being abducted and Bigfoot and, you know, Loch Ness Monster, etc. A lot of these things were quite creepy and you'd be forgiven for being completely shit up by reading a lot of them. But then you have stories that are like this one, Jeff the Talking Mongoose. They're a bit like the and finally story at the end of the news, you know, where after half an hour of harrowing information about war in the Middle East or 
or Eastern Europe, you know, you get the story about a dog saying sausages or something. Except this is a mongoose, being a bit more... It's a mongoose, yeah. yeah. Fluent than that. Yeah, it's spelled Jeff, J. He's Jeff the talking mongoose. Okay, it's spelled G-E-F. That's right. Unusual, eh? It's hmm. pretentious almost. For the 1930s, at least. I mean... 1930s, yeah, that's right. I mean, these days, everybody, everybody's child has a weird spelling in their name. <laughs> well, they were ahead of their time then, weren't they? Very much so, in many respects, yeah. Do you know what the word cryptid means? Spell again. Cryptid. C-R-Y-P-T-I-D. Cryptid. Cryptids are the investigation targets of cryptozoologists. Ah, thank you. That's good. They are the mystical creatures, like Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot, that are rumoured to exist. I thought, when I had to think about this, I think you can classify cryptids at a kind of number of different levels, depending on how kind of weird they are. Your basic cryptid, your level one cryptid, if you like, Mm -hmm. is a perfectly ordinary animal that everyone agrees exists. It just happens to be in the wrong place. place at the wrong time, yeah. I.e. black cats, England. Black cats, your classic one. All all over England, I think, there are probably tales of panthers living in the wild. And doubtless panthers have escaped to live in the wild in England for maybe two months or so. Yeah. I mean, it's not beyond the realms of possibility, but, I mean, imagining a breeding pair... Difficult. Raising litters and, you know, feeding off the herds of sheep sweeping across the majestic countryside. Well, in terms of trophic pyramids, how many sheep would they have to eat? I mean, just innumerable numbers, wouldn't they? I presume so, though. Someone would notice anyway. I, I, I think you're talking that they have to get through at least maybe two or three kilos of meat a day, don't they? So the I second think. level of cryptid is an animal that is now extinct, that we think is extinct, but the people think might somehow have survived in some isolated areas. Uh-huh. This happens to colourful butterflies from South America occasionally. In reality, doesn't it? It also happened to the coelacanth, the prehistoric fish that they discovered is still living wow. as, a, as a fish. The classic example of this sort of type 2 cryptid is obviously Loch Ness, Loch Ness right. Monster, because people claim that it's a plesiosaur. Whoa. A dinosaur... Dying out, okay. presumably. Don't hold back on the ambition there, people. Go for it. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to make claims, make big claims. The big problem with that as a theory is the geography, actually, because Loch Ness, I think, formed in the Ice Age, is maybe, I don't know, 500,000 <laughs> years old. So it would have to walk to overland to get it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> wow. You have to wait for the lake to form and then find its way to the lake. <laughs> I see. So presumably, you know, those low, low, low bridges, it, it would have to have come in some sort of permit to get under low bridges, wouldn't it? <laughs> like some large nuclear installation or something. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Just got a lot less monster coming through. You have to close down the motorway today, sir. The third type of cryptid is something that's genuinely just spooky always round. Bigfoot. Yeah, well, you could argue, but yeah, I suppose Bigfoot is, yeah, because it would have to be kind of a, a hominid, wouldn't it? Or what they call it in America, Sasquatch, Sasquatch Natch? Sasquatch, yeah. Sasquatch, that's it. The, the Mexicans have the flying snake thing, don't they? Quetzalcoatl, Quetzalcoatl ah. or whatever it's called. And there's a few other really weird things, you know. The, these are the all cryptids of level one, two or three. Mermaids, they're unicorns. These are real cryptids, aren't they? No one ever thought they ever existed they don't exist now. And that's level three. They're probably right? supernatural. I think that's level three, yeah. Mongoose is none of those, is it? It's level one, isn't it? It's a mongoose. Mm-hmm. Although, how they knew it was a mongoose, I don't know. I mean, it just looks like a stoat or a weasel, doesn't it? 
Do you know of any famous mongoose, Paul? No. Really? No. You never heard of Rudyard Kipling's Ricky Tikki Tavi? I have not heard of Rudyard Kipling's Ricky Tikki Tavi. No. Oh, I'll leave it to you for a few moments to figure out why I might know of this character. But he's a cartoon mongoose. Mongoose famously stoty, weaselly kind of things that live somewhere in Central Asia, I think. They live they, in the depths of Toad, of Toad Hall. Yeah. Well, they like to eat snakes. They do like to eat snakes, yes. The cobra is their, I think, their main That's like, right, yeah. foe. And mongoose, I think, are at least partially immune to cobra venom. Whoa. It's pretty cool, yeah. Wow. So Richard's about to announce he's also immune to cobra venom, hence <laughs> the association with Ricky T. Tarvey. Well, I imagine it's Ricky T. Tarvey's associated because of your name, Richard. Is that correct? I presume that's why people mentioned it to me, yeah. I see. Yeah. Other than that, I'm not particularly familiar with it. Before we start this movie, have you heard that joke about selling a talking dog? No. Well, it's an advert, you know, maybe it's a classified, you know, local spa or in the paper, and this bloke says, oh, I fancy a dog, and it says, dog, 20 quid, come round to Nine Manor Street or whatever, and knock on the door. So he goes round, knocks on the door, and the bloke says, what are you doing here? He says, I've come to look at your dog that you're selling. He says, all right, through the back, in the backyard. And, you know, in the in the, uh, in the the shed. He says, go on through there and see for yourself. You know, he goes through to the backyard, to the shed, and opens the door. And the dog says, oh, hello, very nice to meet you. And the bloke says, what, what the hell, a talking dog? He says, yes, 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 I'm a talking dog. You know, my skills were, were recognised by the overseas services of the United States of America. I performed several very important missions, including assassination of various heads of state. And the uh, bloke all right, okay, closes the shed Come door, on. goes back to the bloke in his city room and says, well, how much do you want for it? Uh, he says, well, 20 quid. He says, well, why only 20 quid? It's, it's, it's a talking dog. And the bloke says, yeah, but have you seen the bullshit it comes out with? <laughs> <laughs> well, this film begins with someone reading from the letter they're writing. All about the history of talking animals, doesn't it? Yes, it is narratively set within the framework of an epistemological narrative structure. He's talking about the first recorded thing being 5th century BC with a talking parrot. Talking parrot, yes. Cistercius or something like that. He winds up talking about things that he couldn't have known, because I think we're supposed to think that this was Harry Price writing. Uh, I think he was t- talking about a budgie in 1962, which called Sparky Williams, which knew 531 <laughs> words. <laughs> no, it's quite comic. I mean, there's irony daubed all over the screen, isn't there, here? As he's introducing this, this butchery guard, he's exalted at sort of paranormal psychic investigator towns. The butchery guard is coming out with just about a certain amount of filth, isn't it, from out of his mouth, kind of thing. So. And we also get a quote at the start of the film. It says, we may say that fear of death begins at birth. Mm. Now, the characters in this film are, generally speaking, depictions of real people. I see. The old guy in the pub, which uh, our hero goes to see, is Harry Price, a very famous ghost hunter, played here by Christopher Lloyd, who is really getting on, isn't he? But Mm -hmm. nonetheless, uh, he wasn't American, Harry Price, I don't think. I think he was British, but there we go. Nandor Fodor himself... Is a real living person. Well, he's not living anymore. Yeah. This is the 1930s, was, as you rightly pointed out. He was a Hungarian. This was a real age, at the tail end of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century. There's a lot going on in psychical research and mediums being busted. I mean, they talk about Harry Houdini, they? Don't do they do talk about Harry Houdini, yeah. He was big on busting mediums. 
a lot of magicians were into that. Harry Price was a bit of a conjurer as well, I think. I see. Why are magicians so good at this kind of thing? It's because magicians are very good at understanding how people are fooled and how people fool themselves. So I think they're often fascinated by paranormal tales because I think it's clear to a lot of magicians that people are deceiving themselves about things. So there's also, of course, Conan Doyle. He was big into this kind of stuff as well. He wasn't a very accomplished researcher because he was completely taken in by the Cottingley fairies, wasn't he? He thought that was, that was on the up and up, yeah, yeah. Famously so. I never knew that. And then we got Simon Pegg, as you're saying, playing the guy who just introduced Nando Fodor. Yeah. Nando Fodor, yeah. At the start of this film, Nando is being interviewed by a smoking reporter. They did a lot of smoking here, don't they? Yes, they did. He cleverly avoids a direct question put to him about whether ghosts are real by really pointing out about subjectivity. You yeah. know, real is what I can see, hear, feel and smell. Which is a, is a valid a valid counterjection, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this movie is full of quite subtle observations about the nature of reality and how, how this kind of stuff Written works. and directed by Adam Seagal. Let me say, though, in common with quite a lot of the performing arts, I do feel that the, the role of the sceptic, just like on the show Uncanny that we discussed, mm-hmm. the sceptic is often a denigrated role in many of these things. Now, hear this spell sceptic with a K. With two Ks, actually. I was debating, you know, you got sceptic SC, as in sceptic with a C, yeah? Which I think is your common garden sceptic, i.e., you know, I don't believe this, okay? No, 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 look. And then you got sceptic with a K, which is your your authority sceptic. Am I right in thinking that? No, look. Oh. Quite simply, we shouldn't be using sceptic with a C because English, even especially British English people, don't know how to pronounce it, do they? In fact, it's completely ambiguous how you should pronounce it. So we should ditch that stupid spelling and use the American spelling with a K all the time. But how do you spell it Americanly? With a K. One K. But how about two Ks? S-K-E-P-T-I-C-K. Give it a kind of witchcrafty kind of feel to it. Okay, if you like. I mean, it's jazzy. Jazzy, isn't it? Kind of jazzy, yeah. Anyway, sorry, Richard, I've stopped you in tracks. Go on. Don't you think this film is quite harsh on sceptics in the end? Particularly we'll, the we'll ending, yeah, 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 we'll yeah. We'll get into it later, but yeah. generally speaking, though, people in the performing arts are not necessarily the kind of people given to scientific modes of thought. And I think... <laughs> Richard, Richard went through an avalanche of old-fashioned letters flooding through, flooding through his <laughs> letterbox. At least they can't DDoSs. Bring it on. Look, I mean, it's understandable, right? I mean... Sure, they, they don't necessarily... There's this huge thing, <laughs> and I've complained about it before, about how, you know... Richard has been campaigning for defunding the arts for several years now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Go on. Go on. Oh, God, I'll get, we'll get that. I'll stop, I'll stop, I'll stop joking. Let's bring it up when the film talks about it more. Okay. But just to say... No, I, I, was, I'm agreeing I, almost wholeheartedly at the moment. I found this film surprisingly thoughtful. Not perhaps as funny as you might have hoped, but there we go. It did start off funny with the uh, expletive sort of murmurings of, of very small animals, yeah, and it was trying to be funny. I thought it's more thoughtful than funny, but it is billed yeah. as a black comedy. So we, we learn anyway that Nandor is concerned with the question of why people have subjective experiences. He's convinced. I mean, he's point. convinced there's no paranormal activity whatsoever. And uh, he's just more interested in delving into the, the psychological backstories here. Yeah. Now, historically, just to say, Nando Fodor 
was quite an influential parapsychologist. I don't know that, that they use that word then. Psychical researcher, shall we say. Do they still use super, super, supernatural then? Yeah, I think so. Of course, anything he, natural can't be above itself, can it? So that's why we use para, paranormal these days. Is, is that why we changed terms? Possibly. These, are, these things are fashions, aren't they? Mm. But he used to... One of his contributions to the, the science, as it were, was the idea that a poltergeist, rather than being a spirit haunting a place, is actually an expression of inner trauma and frustration or whatever, usually of a young person in the household. And mm. quite often, both in fiction and in real accounts, that turns out to be a young pubescent girl going through puberty. Correct. And mm-hmm. that energy, that newfound hormonal energy or whatever, finds expression in these poltergeist activities, which I think one interpretation is they're simply fucking with people because they they get pleasure out of screwing people around when they're, you know, hormonal. And I guess it's just diverting as an entertainment. I, but in some cultures there is the shame of blood and the shame of womanhood, isn't there? And I suppose so also, yeah. yeah. That shame has to be expressed somehow, doesn't it? Which may be why it's quite often more often depicted as, as a female. But Nando Fodor was not discounting the idea that some of this energy could express itself with psychokinesis, that they were moving things with their mind. Okay. So although he was quite scientific and quite given to looking for rational explanations for things. That's not the Nando we see in this movie, though, is it? No, I think it is. Oh. I think it is in many ways. I don't think they've taken too many liberties with his personality. But just to say it was a different time, right? And But I think know, here he's presented very much as a hard-hatted rationalist, isn't he? Yeah. Well, I think he was basically, mm-hmm. but he, he left the door open to the possibility that there was some psychokinesis. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, famous poltergeist cases, like the most famous one probably is the Enfield poltergeist. Y- you know of it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With the girl jumping with a night nightdress off the bed. <laughs> well, it's interesting you use that word because... Yeah, the picture is clearly of a girl jumping off a bed <laughs> and then the camera with the flash stops it in midair to make it, I suppose, appear like she's being levitated by a spirit. I don't know. Yeah. But it, to me, looking at that picture without any context, to me it's quite obvious she's just jumped off the bed with her sister doing the same thing, isn't it? It's yeah. like it's like an Instagram thing, isn't it? Anyway, big diversion. Oh, hero Nando returns home in the rain. He's living with his... PA, I think. Is he living now? Mini driving. She's not been in many movies, movies recently, has she not? You were claiming that. I was claiming she might be in the Italian job. <laughs> but that's not true. So, no, I think this is an attempt at comedy. Her first note taking of his, you know, requirements. Or his, he comes back and he has, she, he has her read letters. Yeah. Is that she, right? He's got loads of letters from his adoring public. I, this is supposed to be humorous. This is supposed to be broadly humorous, I think, isn't it? Because she's nervous and she does a very good job at being nervous and. He says, you know, surmise it, and then she surmises too succinctly, and it's quite funny. He gives short shrift to a picture of a spirit, a very blurry picture of a ghost. Well done. And then she describes, I love man, a creature living in a barn. It's a talking mongoose called Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Which should capture anybody's attention, I think, wouldn't it? What does capture his attention is that that letter is from Harry Price, the world-renowned psychical investigator. Whoa. Who... History would judge as a bit more of... He's not as scientific as Nandor Fodor. He's a bit more of a, a chancer. We'll jump the fence as and when it suits him, is what you're saying. 
Yeah, and he did, but he did some interesting investigations. He investigated Bali Rectory, which was given to be the most haunted place in the world at one point. What? And he also, I read that he also did he did a pagan ceremony somewhere with like a magic circle and spells, and the outcome was supposed to be turning a girl into a goat or a goat into a girl or something. It didn't work, no. but he did that to demonstrate that it didn't. You know, magic doesn't work. I see. But it's an interesting thing to, to attempt, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, some of us wouldn't necessarily need that demonstration. Can we, can we, can we just leave that there? I mean. Harry Price admits, and he goes to see him in the pub at this point, he admits that he did not see Jeff the Talking Mongoose. But that he, he has does say, affected him. And that he heard it. He said he heard it. Whoa. He, he also explains that Nandor's become unpopular with the London Spiritual, Spiritualist Alliance, or whatever that is. Again, this is historically accurate. Nandor Fodor was one for putting forward sceptical explanations. Mm -hmm. The psychic research team that Harry Price had been working for were not as sceptical, generally speaking. They were more like Ghost Watch or whatever. They weren't too pleased with Nandor Fodor's work. So this guy in the Isle of Man is called Mr. Irving. He's been sending lots of letters to Harry Price. Harry hands them all over, along with his journal, to Nandor, and bids him go see him, basically, doesn't he? He says, though, two important points. He only heard it once from another room, (laughs) and the daughter is an adept ventriloquist. (laughs) And he also says something about... He says that the house that they're in has got all this wood panelling with quite deep spaces between the panelling and the wall behind rendering this entire sort of farmhouse like a kind of sounding box, making it very easy for sound to tra- travel from room to room and stuff. You know? have, you ever, have you ever had the chance to go to one of those kind of parks or kind of installations around the world where you go to the Whispering Circle and it's like a domed kind of wall garden? Oh, yes, I have. I have, yeah. And it's I did incredible. It in, um, in Jodrell Bank. And you, know. you stand at the focal point of the sound. Or the inverse focal point, I'm not quite sure. One of the focal points, and the sound all heads to another focal point on the other side of the, essentially the sound mirror, yeah, or the sound. Oh, well, I mean, there's sort of natural ones, aren't there? Like the Whispering Gallery in St. Paul's. Oh, they're natural ones. I didn't realise that. But there are, well, I say natural, obviously it was a built environment. But the one I went to was two parabolic dishes facing each other, but, you know, 10 10 metres apart or something. And you go to the focal point of one and whisper, and someone listening at the focal point of the other will hear you quite clearly in your ear. Really clearly. Astonishingly yeah. clearly. Yeah. 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 It's something that everybody should do, I think, just to be wowed by a few, 50 decibel voice just carries right across, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 metres. Now, I think at this point, during the conversation, Nandor states clearly he's not a sceptic. It's like the, it's almost a dirty word even in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. But he had become disillusioned with mediums, hadn't he, and stuff. And I think... His trigger point was when someone was purporting to be communicating from his, his dead father or mother or something. Which will become important later. Which was the same that happened to Houdini. And I think Price compares Houdini to Fodor at this point, doesn't he? Apparently Houdini had been attending seances in a bad disguise and he'd set up a post-mortem message with his wife so that when he died, he told his wife to go to mediums. If she received that message that they'd prearranged, obviously she would know that he really had survived his death. Supposedly, they did get that message. I I don't know whether that's true. We also see that Nandor is a bit of a drinker, isn't he? He's got a bit of a drinking habit. He he insists on having... What was he drinking? Whiskey or gin or something? Whiskey, I think, yeah, whiskey. And so they're they're drinking on their 
journey to the Isle of Man. We see them going on on a steam train. Now, what do you think about the Isle of Man generally? Because, I mean, it was my mother's favourite holiday destination. You know, was it? Because I've been to the Isle of Man a lot, you know. I, well, that's what I was asking you, yeah. I've worked there, I've worked there a lot. I mean, because it, it was jam-packed. It was as jam-packed as Blackpool 50 or 60 years ago. But this is it. The Isle of Man, in its day, in the peak of the Industrial Revolution, presumably, it was the exotic Blackpool, It was the better it? place to go, you know, if you could afford yeah. the ferry over kind of thing. And That's more expensive, right. right. More expensive uh, hotels and that kind of thing. So it was almost like the Riviera of the North, if you like. Oh, yeah, it has palm trees and stuff. Yeah, it's got a, a beachfront or a bay in the capital, Douglas, with lots of hotels on the front. Many of them are a bit shabby and lying empty most of the year now because ah. it's not all of that popular a destination anymore. It's just a place to part your dollars these days, yeah. But it, what it does have, of course, is the annual Isle of Man TT, the motorcycle road race. you say annual Tinwald. Well, it has Tinwald. It has one of the world's oldest parliaments, yeah. It lays claim to being one of the first parliaments. I just imagine that resembling Wicker Man for some reason. It does. No, it's an outdoor, no. <laughs> like a circle. Sorry. I mean, they have a proper parliament building now, I should say. But I mean, it's independent. I'm not so suggesting Wicker Man was any, in any way democratic. But, well, it's mass, a crown dependency. democratic, so it, it is strictly independent. It's independent, a different country. Apart from yeah. its defence and defence. Has its own, you know, wireless networks, you know, mobile phone providers and stuff. You can see the vestigial remnants of its slightly higher brow kind of holiday destination. Yes. It doesn't have a pleasure beach, which is obviously to its detriment now, but it does have an electric railway, which it is a does. tram system, which goes up the side of the mountain, it, very Swiss style. In fact, there's an area called Little Switzerland around there, yeah. which is very alpine. It also has a giant water wheel. All right, thank you. The Laxi wheel. Yeah, thank that's you. Also, yeah, nice. Wheel. And a Viking ship somewhere in a museum. Well, they have they do Viking longboat racing. I took part in one. I've rode a Viking longboat. Okay, it's all good on that. Did you really? I mean, it wasn't my choice. The ah. client I was working with were rowing their corporate boat, oh, gosh. and I had to go along. Uh, and which take I part. It's very much appropriate. Presumably, they've got slaves to row their their boat. <laughs> you had no choice in the matter. <laughs> I was chained to the oar. Yeah, I, I gave my best. What can I do? Now the triangle of sadness. That's that moment. Come in the jacuzzi. You know, take time off work. You'll, you'll love it. Is it nice? Yes, yes, yes. It's lovely. I really enjoy rowing this. Thank you. One thing the other man does have, which I think they utilise in the film, is a steam train. That runs between yeah. Castletown and Douglas, I think. When they're filming the images of them travelling on the steam train, I imagine that was actually filmed on the Isle of Man. Right. So we can imagine in yesteryear, it must have been very well healed. It has a standard tram, it has sort of a mountaintop railway, and it has a steam train. All to these delightful little locations. Yeah. It also has its own language, doesn't it? It has a language, yeah, Manx. Yeah. It's obviously heavily Celtic influence, the whole place. And the connection with Liverpool too. So I thought that was quite well observed. This successful businessman had come to retire and Paul McCartney style start to form in the middle of Isle of Man. And it has a beautiful kind of mongrel accent that's like Irish meets Scouse. Is it? Right. Okay. Yeah. Quite distinctive in a way. Makes sense. Thank you, Isle of Man Tourist Board, for your support this week. Now then, <laughs> yeah. So he arrives there in the middle of nowhere. and goes to the farm pretty quickly, doesn't he? Before beforehand, I think they set they set down at a local bordello. Is that right? A local inn. Yeah, yeah. it's like with one guy with a swifty eye, yeah, looking after him. 
Played by Paul Kay, by the way. Very convincingly weird old chap in the middle of nowhere. It's actually in a place in the Isle of Man, apparently I've not heard of, called Cashin's Gap. So they were told by Harry Price that this mongoose has been <laughs> catching rabbits for the Irvings. That's how they first discovered it. To the extent it was decimating the local rabbit population. It claims that it's an earth spirit, which is really interesting claim. Mm. The newspaper you see actually calls it a weasel at one point. So I don't know where the epithet of mongoose came from. They describe how, with the villagers, it sometimes plays a game where it's behind a closed door with a hole in it and they put a coin on a post and it <laughs> I tells like this, them I like, it's this is funny, this is funny. Heads sorry. or tails. And it sometimes gets it right, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that was a funny moment. Harry Price had also been sent a sample of hair that the Irvings had sent him. And he sent this off to a zoologist <laughs> to be analysed. Yeah. This guy analysed it and claimed with confidence that it was from a dog, which is interesting, a bit of forensics. Because, I mean, that has great... You know, you were talking about the, like, the moorland big cats that we have sightings mm. of all over the place. Of course, one of the pieces of evidence they always come up with is always pulling like a bit of hair off barbed wire. I see. You know, and they're always trying to get this analysed and stuff. It's, I mean, analysing animal hair is not all that easy. I mean, it might have been easier in Victorian times when the Natural History Museum, you know, had like a cutting from every animal on the planet or something. Presumably a naturalist with the time and patience to look through them all. But it's not like it, there's an easy... You can't do a DNA test in the 1930s, can you? So no. It's not easy, I don't think, to just match a bit of hair. No, I mean, you, you, you had to be an expert in your field in the 1930s. There was no recourse, really, to immediate help, was there? Price describes when he visited... This is all in sort of flashback, isn't it? We mm-hmm. see this. And the Irvings told him that Jeff had disappeared, so they don't get to see him until at one point where they end up having a chat through the wall. <laughs> Price appeals to Jeff at one point to make an appearance and I think Irving tells him that he's got to say I believe in you <laughs> and then they hear Jeff responding his companion who's called Mr Lambert who's another interesting chap I think another historical chap I think he wound up being something in the BBC wow in the end Mr Lambert tries to go upstairs because he thinks the voice might be coming from the upstairs in the farmhouse but he falls down the stairs and apparently Jeff is startled by the noise and flees it's a very skittish little animal isn't he but he saw holes in the wood panelling didn't he and this is where he talks about acting like a big sounding board and the daughter of the house shows Harry Price this little sanctum where he apparently dances to a gramophone (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, in the present time, as it were, in the 1930 visit of Nandor and Anne. Before they head up there, did, does the innkeeper or the man at the inn, does he tell them of his experience with Jeff yes, or not? Yes, he does. He does. Yeah. He says, here to see old Jeff, eh? Uh, he says, he's an earth spirit. And he says, <laughs> two, two, two years pass now. He says, for a brief moment out of the corner of his eye, what was he doing, Paul? Tell the story. No, I think this is where it's supposed to sort of weave into... Explicit comedy, isn't it? He was at his wife's funeral, is that right? Or some such thing? Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, he was obviously worse to aware because he was not dealing with it well. And just as they'd interred his wife in the ground and the priest was saying goodbye to people, he had the need for a pee. 
And so, you know, drunkenly, he sort of went round a corner of the churchyard while still visible by, by the gathered crowd, unzipped his pants and, and started He to, drops his trousers to the point you can see his ass. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He started doing a waz. And that's when Jeff appeared to him and started reciting a very moving, somewhat cruelly relevant poem about death to him. It's by Yeats, isn't it? The Dream of Death. Um, we get all this, and at the end of it, he says, but you do realise, of course, that there's something special about this. And that was the fact that Yeats had only published it two years after his wife's death in 1935. And he says, that was the day I finally quit drinking. He takes a, <laughs> another <swig>. <laughs> so at this point, we're not really sure of the tone of the movie, are we? Whether it's just going to be hilarious or kind of slapstick or, or farcical or what. Well, Nandor stakes his case, doesn't he? He says, believe not words, but provable facts. He admonishes Anne for believing the nonsense from the innkeeper. That's right, yeah. yeah. The innkeeper drives him to meet Dr. Irving on a, a, a rough track mm-hmm. where they, ex- they get out of the innkeeper's car and hop in or walk with Mr. Irving or something, don't they? But when Mr. Irving uh, greets the innkeeper, he says, oh, I see you've met the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> don't know how true that is what I want to say about the Isle of Man that's interesting and hooks into all of the earth spirit stuff and this is a bit like I think we discussed it before in Iceland where they're reverential yes, about in, the elves they believe it elves don't they they won't move rocks and stuff that are the elf houses in the Isle of Man maybe you experienced this maybe you only went by ferry I don't know whenever I was flown there On the road between the airport and Douglas, the capital, the taxi, and they may have built a bypass or an extra road, I don't know, but the taxi would always go past this particular point, which is a little brook that goes goes through a culvert under the road with some whitewashed... It was the Fairy Bridge. It's called the Fairy Bridge. it's, It's called that. It's written on it, I think. And the taxi drivers... I shit you not, every one of them, when you cross the fairy bridge, will wave, and some of them will say, hello, fairies, or something. And some of them will explain, because they think you're not from around these parts, that's the fairy bridge, you should always say hello to the fairies, <laughs> otherwise they will visit bad luck upon you. Okay. Now, that's strange I'll, enough. I'll touch it. It does, it does give you this, this general feeling <laughs> that you're a long way from home one way or another. <laughs> There might be uh, pitchforks and torchlights at your window in the evening. A crowd of people staring in, looking to sacrifice you. Yeah. So if you want to be a weird taxi driver in the Isle of Man, you've got to do. You've got to go a bit further than average. Right? So one time I was in a taxi going back to the airport. Actually, I mean I'm sure he waved to the fairies, but I was distracted. Do you say hello, fairies? No. Just to protect no. the taxi driver. No. No. Hopefully he can't see me, right? But I'm, all, I'm always looking, right? I always look for the taxi driver and whether or not he waves. And many of them are <laughs> very studying, subtle about it. You're using it as an anthropological observation. Especially in latter days, that many of them are very subtle, but they will just do the old Nod. you know, the finger lift on the, fi- on the steering ah. wheel. Yeah. That's strange. But I was coming back from the other manor, and in the taxi to the airport, taxi driver says to me, I was abducted by aliens once. <laughs> no. Did you, were there locks on the doors? Did you check if there were locks on the doors at that point? Because you're about to be abducted by a crazed taxi driver. <laughs> and he says, Sorry, go on. And ever, ever since then, they follow me wherever I go. Oh, Christ. I tell you, if someone says that to you, it you is get not out the possible. Taxi, don't you? <laughs> if you can, I mean. It's not possible to immediately, you cannot stop yourself from immediately looking out of the window. 
to the sky. Yes. Now, I knew I wasn't going to see anything, right? Not once did I, for an iota, a moment, did I ever think I was going to see anything. But inevitably, I had to look. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what he said. He might have said, oh, you can't see them, of course. Oh, no, of course not. <laughs> do, I mean, do you find Isle of Man to be a backwater like Guernsey or Jersey's? Because I've never been to oh, well, Jersey or Jersey. No, well, look. But, you know, I mean, the thing is, where you have these, I, I would say, these artificial buffetings of cash and capital, yeah. Yes. And I think Ireland, the whole the whole island of Ireland is becoming something like this now, where cash maybe exceeds the, shall we say, natural talent of the occup- uh, of the inhabitants. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. Okay. And where the people who aren't necessarily inhabitants, but, you know, the people managing this money, uh, maybe they, they receive the money more easily than, than, you know, other banks would in the rest of the world, yeah. Do you tend to find you get a lot of people in high positions who perhaps aren't capable of doing their jobs? Oh, well... It's certainly said of Jersey and Guernsey, and I'm sure the same is true of the Isle of Man, but, you know, it is an adage, as it were, that mm. what would be a, the, I don't know, the, the butcher in is the a bailiff, town yeah. is the... Mm. Yeah, the bin man is a teacher or whatever. It's a de- that's a great bin man, isn't it? Which I don't mean to do. But, you know, the, the idea is that, yeah, everyone has got, gone up a rung on the ladder because there really? is not enough people to fill the mm-hmm. upper echelons. I'm not sure that's necessarily true ah. because... I mean, Jersey and Guernsey, of course, are desirable destinations. You can't buy property in Jersey and Guernsey unless you have a, like a million in the bank or you wow. used to be something. And Jersey and Guernsey, which are both closer to France than they are to England, they've got good climate mm-hmm. and, yeah, it's considered a very desirable and place. And there's a whole Bergerac after, afterglow, isn't there? So Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's a very market garden kind of place and it's got good food and plenty of tourism and and of course, you know, the main business is finance and wealth. But, I mean, I would say Jersey and Guernsey are much more cramped. They're like, you know, a fraction of the size of the mm. other man and have more people, I believe. And there's just not very much space, which is one of the reasons why property is so difficult to come by and everything's quite expensive by comparison. Which you can get to the other man with, what, 100,000 or something? I don't know. I don't know. But the other man feels much bigger. It feels it has countryside. Like, I'm not saying you can't go for a country walk in Jersey, but you're never more than a 10 yards from somebody's back garden. But mm-hmm. in the Isle of Man, you know, you've got a mountain, you could go fell walking, and it it feels like there's a little a chunk blue of bell, island there's of a, There's now. a bluebell glade where you can go and hump, is what you're saying. <laughs> I felt Isle of Man was actually... I was much more at home in the Isle of Man because mm. it's probably more northern and a little bit scarce, perhaps. Western, yeah. It's, Actually, it's not that damp because it's, I think it's probably in the range shadow of bits of... Yeah, it's in the lee of the yeah. Westerlies, isn't it? Correct, yeah, well observed. But certainly it is also, the weather isn't as good as, no doubt, as Guernsey and uh, Jersey. But it's quite mild, actually. Mm-hmm. Very, very early snow. Well, it's surrounded by warming seas, isn't it, in the winter particularly? Yeah, that's right. It's, yeah, it's a very maritime climate. But for whatever reason, it is not considered as desirable, except with, you know, the kind of rich person that has that Jeremy Clarkson takes piss off for having an onyx table with gold accoutrements. And, and Roman yeah. columns outside yeah. the... Outside it's, the yeah, it's like a carpet warehouse magnate's idea of... A Sports Direct success, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's unfair. I think the Isle of Man is, in many ways, the equal of... For natural beauty, it's the equal of Jersey and Guernsey in, in a lot of ways. But it doesn't have... It definitely doesn't have the same... Uh, to the extent that they do the same cosmopolitan, metropolitan feel that 
you know, Jersey and going the to the money brings. Yeah. yeah. So, so, uh, we got waylaid. So, I, I mean, they're up there now, aren't they? Uh, he, that's right. That's he right. and, uh, his assistant and they're up there. At the and of course, house. what does, what does Irving say when they arrive? Gotta say you believe in it. No, he says Jeff left about a week ago. <laughs> oh, right. Yes. He's not been around, but there is a cave but, half a mile up. But go half up there, a mile up the mountain. Sometimes yeah. he hides up there. You might, you might cheekily speak to you if you go up there. So they hike up to the cave, they stand at the mouth. Mr. Irving encourages Nandor <laughs> to speak to Jeff. And again, he says, you have to assure Jeff that you believe he's real. So he does so. Quite convincingly, I thought, for a sceptic. The cave remains silent. <laughs> As you might expect. So they go inside. Mr. Irving says, well, let's go inside. Let's have a look. And they see like a stash of stuff that Jeff has stolen, <laughs> apparently, um, put in the cave. Looks it, rather like an impromptu stash that you might gather from your home and put in a cave <laughs> before somebody arrived to look at it. You know, like an eaten apple, some clothes, some trinkets, that kind of thing. Now, we should just say the Irvings are Mr. and Mrs. Irving. Their mm-hmm. daughter, is it Vorag or Morag? Voyery. Voyery, that's it. And they have... And they, they have a sort of farmhand called Errol. Yes. Now, on the way down, Nandor is asking Errol... What do you make of all of this? Yeah, have you got a Jeff story like everybody else on the island seems to? And he has a laugh with him about the fact that there were some ladies' underwear in the spoils in the cave. What does Errol reply? You and I know there ain't no Jeff here. You and I both know there ain't no Jeff. But he seems to have no problem with it. I mean, he's in these people's employs, so maybe it's his interest not to have a problem with it. He expounds on his position later, doesn't he? Mm. But back in the farmhouse, Annie's going to the loo. And she overhears Voiry singing quite beautifully and hauntingly. A Noel Callard ditty, which would have been recently released. Pop song, yeah. But then suddenly she hears another voice, like a, a, a weird voice. I didn't realise. The guy that does... Who's the guy that does the voiceover here? Ah, the guy that does the voiceover is well-known comic book and fantasy author Neil Gaiman. <laughs> <laughs> doing doing a, a quite charming Jeff. <laughs> Anne knocks and has to go in. Voyu starts demonstrating how to throw her voice, doesn't mm. she? She teaches Anne how to do it. She says something really interesting. She says that humans can't tell the direction of sound. Ooh, not true. I think she's contrasting it to eyes, right, to sight, mm-hmm. where obviously you know exactly where light is coming from. You have to point your eyes to capture the light, don't you? Yes, 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 yes. But I think what you're going to say is it's much more complicated than that, and ears are actually pretty good at telling direction. Yeah, Acuity, I mean, the ears, in terms of acuity, they're much more powerful than the eyes. We can distinguish sounds much, much better. But I don't... I mean, Is that true? Is that really true? Yeah, that is really true. The eye, dark adapted, can detect a single photon. Okay. But... But... I mean, in terms of of intensity or volume, can it distinguish that? Like, like, in terms of colour variety... Can like like the ear can detect very 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 small changes in tim- timbre timbre timber. I don't know how you would say that word. Timbre, isn't it? Tombra. The quality of the, the sound and the volume of sound. You know, in, almost imperceptible changes in volume and and that kind of thing we can detect with our ears. So I think acuity or resolution is stronger in the ear. Well, the clever thing about the ear, but maybe not direction, is the ear is a, basically a Fourier transform, right? It, it detects yes. all of the frequencies. And reassembles them. You can tell two notes playing at the same time, right? Because that's, say, a chord, isn't it? Or a discord. Mm. And the ear can detect that because you end up with 
like two sets of hairs vibrating. Whereas the eye only detects like the average of the frequencies when it's that are hitting it in any one point. So if you see light made up of red, green, and blue mixed together, you see it as white. You won't realize that it's actually red, green, and blue. Yes. Because the Whereas, eye doesn't furry the a sounds are coming from two diff- slightly di- different directions. You could resolve it into, say, two, say, vector components, two, two which are parallel and maybe a plane that's non-parallel. Yeah. So you're going to get super superposition in the two opposing waves. But in the two parallel waves, you're just going to get sort of uh, a progressive wave, aren't you? Not, not a standing wave. And so its Fourier analysis allows it allows the ear to decompose it back into direction, I think, isn't it? Well, there's two things I think the ear does. And I'm not an expert on this. But obviously, we've got two ears. So you can use the differential timing between the signal hitting one ear and another. Just like a Beatles album, early Beatles album. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, the fake stereo. Yeah, I mean, exactly. The difference in timing, and we are very sensitive to that difference, actually. You're, you're right. We're very sensitive to very small differences in timing between the impingement of the pressure wave on each ear. That gives us a location at least in 180 degrees mm-hmm. in a flat plane. But the other thing is our sort of hearing brain or cortex, whatever that does this bit, understands it has a model for the shape of the outside of our ear, the pinna, you know, the fleshy bit. And it can actually tell the direction vertically because of the way it hits our our ear. Wow. You know, because sounds coming from different directions hit the folds on our ear in different ways. And somehow our brain has learned to understand what those sort of complications, convocations, I don't know, integrations of... Of waves are crazy AI genetic learning we've got going on here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, modern positional audio systems. Sometimes they use microphones with like fake ears on the outside of them. Wow. But I don't think that's what Vori is talking about. She's just saying, you know, we're not very particularly at different frequencies. We're not necessarily very good at telling where sound comes from. So during this little lesson, Anne starts singing and she's being encouraged to throw her voice into the hole, but then. It starts singing back at her, doesn't it? The the voice. It could be Vari, couldn't it? She, she's not singing at that point. So Correct. Yeah. In the hotel bar later, Nandor is saying how they're all crazy except Errol. <laughs> and he talks about seeing a woman's small clothes in the cave, which I thought was a delightful turn of phrase that I may, may be forced to use. But Annie's wondering why they would do it. They don't get any value out of it. They don't get any money from mm. this whole... Why would you do it? It's an interesting question. And she stays silent about the fact that she's had a weird experience of ventriloquist-like activity in Vari's room. And she tells him he he should consider if there's a possibility that Jeff might be real. The next day, they head out there, don't they? And Isn't he awakened in the middle of the night by the hotel guy with a call on one of those old-fashioned candlestick telephones? That's right. Sorry. Sorry, I've missed something pivotal here. And it's actually a call from Jeff. From Jeff, yeah. Who says in his funny Neil Gaiman voice, (laughs) if you ever saw me, you'd be turned into a pillar of salt and a bunch of other quite cryptic and (laughs) somewhat threatening things in some ways. Fodor assures him he means him no harm, but he says, I shall never see you again. That's what your father said to you before you left Budapest. Mm. Take it back, because it is correct. That's exactly what his father said to him. 
presumably before he died. And then Jeff says, tomorrow I will let you see me. Whoa. And the next day, they're on the way in the car and he's going over with Anne. Surely, maybe someone could have known about his story with his father. Perhaps they'd read some of his papers about that he'd written, maybe, about leaving Budapest. When he talks about receiving the call to Irving, Mr. Irving says, oh yeah, he could have slipped into somebody's house and dialed it with nimble fingers. Nimble little fingers, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's very hard to understand. I mean, at this point, you know... Fordo is just completely, it's, it's just concerned these people are maniacally insane, isn't it? I mean. But also clearly perpetrating a hoax, he thinks. He says that Vori is not feeling well. She's got some kind of allergy, so she's not coming out. Loads of locals have arrived and are hanging around the farmyard. Having had phone calls or having met with Jeff? They've the all had calls from Jeff, yeah. <laughs> He's called them up. <laughs> so Mr. Irving he tells them all to be calm and leads them into the hay barn. Errol's got a sheet covering a box on the floor and he lifts the sheet and there's like a hole or a break in the box top where you can see some fur visible beneath the box lid and it's kind of moving around. And takes a sample of it and says, oh, I will make sure this gets back to London to be analysed. Jeff starts mimicking Fodor, who's asking him questions, doesn't it? It then makes some kind of pronouncement of cosmic horror that I, I didn't quite make out. Someone in the crowd faints and in the commotion... It is said, Jeff has fled. I think Irving says, Jeff has fled now because you've made a, made a noise. And on the way out, Fodor confronts Errol. And he's saying, you know, you, you, play, you let them play along. And Errol says, all anyone wants in the world is to be happy. Which is a fair observation, yeah. Maybe you would too if you let people believe what they want to believe. Which is the central question of this film, isn't it? It's, mm. I think it's what it's trying to make a case for. And so I think at this point, as a sceptic, I just have to say, what is the harm in letting people believe whatever the hell they want to believe, Paul? Well, that's obviously very harmful, isn't it? Well, I'm glad you said that. I don't think we need to discuss that even, do we? False beliefs can lead to harm. Yeah, absolutely. And riotous mobs. It's difficult to know what that harm will be as well. It's an unintended consequences. Often involves riotous, uneducated mobs. (laughs) But you could argue that true beliefs can lead to that, but at least... I mean, there's good reason for that if people suffer harm. True, but, I mean, let's think about burning down 5G mass for all. Just reflect on that, shall <laughs> Or cutting down the... Uh, what they're doing lately is cutting down the... Please. Oh, l- the low-emission low zone cameras, don't they? Errol says, when you walk away, they call you an asshole. <laughs> and he walks away and he calls <laughs> he you an asshole. He walks away and Errol goes, asshole, yeah. <laughs> I think he should have said, what's the harm in letting people believe harmless things? Now, that, I think, qualified makes more sense. Yeah, but even so, right, was this thing harmless? Surely no, what it's doing, no. possibly, is it may be masking one of the Irving's mental mental illnesses, perhaps, for all we know, isn't it? Uh, but a very, very manic mental illness that drives them to find out secrets about other people. Yeah, and kill rabbits, if we're led to believe. And get in boxes with a bit of fur, with a fur stole or whatever it must have been. And engineer the tunnels that allows them to do that. <laughs> Fodor is getting drunk in the pub. He's basically... As you would do, having spoken to her. Teasingly, I don't know which sort of archetypal animistic god this little mongoose resembles. He's very Loki-like, isn't he? Loki, yes. He's a trickster god kind of thing. Anne admits that she's certain that Jeff exists. Something has convinced her now. I think possibly she went upstairs to try and find Vori while they were in the barn. Mm -hmm. Fodor, drunk now, gets... 
the mayor slash innkeeper to, to drive him straight to the Irving's farm. And he's taken a sledgehammer with him. He arrives yelling for Jeff. Mr. Irving confronts him. But he storms into the barn. He's with there to cut down some Tudor panel board, isn't he? See what's behind all this. And now he goes to the box, doesn't he, in the barn? Oh, he wants to chop up the box. He breaks the lid with the hammer. As he's bending over it, Errol clocks him on the back of the head with the butt of the shotgun. And he winds up in jail. For having trespassed, presumably. Yeah, Nandor ends up in jail, not Errol. Yeah. The barn was a lot, though, so it was only trespass. I'm not sure you could be arrested for that. Well, he was brandishing a, a sledgehammer. Oh, and damaging um, and property. Yelling, yeah. And yeah. obviously drunk as well. He was drunk and disorderly. Drunk and disorderly. There we go. In the slab. Right. So he's sleeping it off in the cell, but he hears a voice from the cell <laughs> next to him. And these are old-fashioned cells, aren't they? Like you see in westerns, they're just bar-fronted cubicles. There's nobody in that cell. Yeah. Well, we don't see anybody next to him. He talks to, the, to Jeff, apparently, for a while, and then he puts his arm through the bars round to the other cell, and he says... It says... If I can't see you, Je- uh, Jeff, just just scratch me a little bit on my wrist. And after a while, after Jeff saying he doesn't want to hurt him, he does scratch him. Viciously. And it leaves a little mark. Hmm. And we then see them going home, Anne and Fodor, on a boat, onto a steam train. On the train home, Anne resigns from her position as his PA, but he implores her to stay on. She will do, for a dollar an hour, for another condition, which wasn't quite sure... And if he confirms that... Jeff must be real. Jeff must be real. He accedes to two of the conditions, but he will not accede to the fact that Jeff is real. She agrees nonetheless. I think he later gets a a letter from Mr Irving saying that he's engaged a libel lawyer, basically threatening him from publishing anything that makes the Irvings out to be hoaxing everybody. He goes and speaks to Harry Price again. And says that Jeff calls him on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> and did they have a tete-a-tete in the pub? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Where they dissect this in rational and clinical terms. And quite thoughtfully again as well. But aren't we, aren't we supposed to see two wounded rationalists that aren't prepared to admit they've seen wonder? Is that not how it's portrayed at the end? That there's a fizzle out of their rationality and... and, and I think that's soft-pedalled. I don't think mm-hmm. we're led to believe that they've seen anything that really shakes them. I think part of this movie is about, you know, how difficult it is to arrive at the truth, actually. You know, what really is the truth? It's interesting, you know, early on, very early on, when she's reading the letters to him and he completely rejects that spirit photograph, which is quite right. Photography is a notoriously bad way of trying to capture a ghost, right? And it's clearly easily fakeable, isn't it? In fact, spirit photography came about... intentionally fakeable too, I mean. Exactly. Spirit photography came about at the time that photography came about, in the same way that (laughs) orbs came about at the time compact cameras with flashes built in came about, and rods came about when cheap video cameras came around. Ah, yes. You know, all of these things are the products of their technology. But a photograph is often held up as being one of the gold standards of evidence. And, you know, everyone looks for photographic evidence or video evidence. But we know these days, deep fakes, CGI and stuff like that, just can't rely on these things anymore. Mm-hmm. So what have you got? I mean, go and see it with your own eyes. Go and witness it. Go and interview people. But I thought that's not easy either, is it? You know, I, I thought, because I, I like to imagine what deep, what extended metaphor could a film be about? And I... I entertained this idea for a short time. It's not convincing, but it's interesting nonetheless. Priest holes and the confessional Catholic church, you know, and the wooden, if you've ever been in a confessional Catholic church, that whole kind of 
surrounding our experience if you you know in a catholic church you're surrounded by the, the catholic community which are all ears and how does the priest have more knowledge about your situation than you do well one you tell him in the confessional okay but also two people feed him information don't they at the same time and just this idea of living in a place where there's there are peepholes all around of course if you're the observed the observer has more information about you than than you do about them so I just thought the whole thing where Jeff knows these things and, and dials them in by phone. It's just, <laughs> I don't know. It, it's when we, I mean, I think the only way you can know truth is to get away from other humans because, at least for a short time, because as soon as you have an intelligent body watching what you're thinking about, they're going to try and influence influence what you're thinking, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. I mean, they touch on, the, on at the end, Harry and Nandor and Anne have all contributed to this idea, but they're saying, they're talking about why they publish their papers. And they say, well, it's to be remembered, remembered for our names yeah. to be known. Mm. And, you know, Nandor points out, you know, what do the Irvings have to be remembered for? Being sheep farmers or mm. being rich industrialists from Liverpool or being the people who, <laughs> you know, like 100 years later, we're talking about, talking about a film made about them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, about the, the deity on their farmhouse. The last shot is, of course, of a mongoose standing on a little hill in the Island Man. <laughs> In the wind, a beautifully CG rendered, CGI rendered mongoose. There we go. Very sensibly kept to the very end of the movie. I liked this because more than I expected I would, because it reminds me of my favourite X Files episode, which is one again about how you can never really know the truth. They go and investigate a UFO sighting, and you see the same story told several times as they go interviewing different people, but from different points of view. And each point of view has a very different take of the characters. It's, it's really well done because everyone goes away from all of those encounters with a very different sort of explanation of what happened. Obviously, we, we saw the same thing happening several times, but it's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? Which I think this, this film is sort of expressing. Each of the investigators has a completely different and confounding experience about the whole thing. Yeah, it's satisfyingly unresolved at the end also, isn't it? Apart from the... The appearance oh, of the mongoose random mongoose on the top of the hill. <laughs> but in their minds, at least, it's satisfyingly, unsatisfyingly, but satisfyingly, unsatisfyingly untied. All the knots are left kind of frayed, aren't they? So I like that. I thought there was an element of maturity and sophistication in how this film approaches its, its subject matter. So, Paul, mm -hmm. it comes to the point where we have to arbitrarily score this film. Let's arbitrarily score it. Uh, let's talk about acting. Yeah, I mean, Simon Pegg, I'm not always a great fan. I sometimes I'm sometimes not, but I thought he was great in this. He was really good. I really liked good. him, yeah. Mini Driver was excellent. Superb. Paul Kay, brilliant. Gaiman puts up a sterling performance as a mythical creature. An eight from me. Good. Yeah, okay. I'll give it an eight also. I love the plot. The plot. Mm. Yes. I very much worried and wondered what they were going to do. <laughs> yeah, they did a true story. They managed to hold my attention for nine talking minutes. I would say this, though, right? Mm. Sometimes I describe movies as being more like TV shows or TV movies. Yeah. That's an increasingly meaningless distinction, isn't it? Correct. As more and more big-budget things become TV shows on streaming services. And there are plenty of very good small-budget films as well, let's, let's face it. It's not just about budget, though, is it? It's also about mood and pacing and subject matter. What I'm saying is... If you went into the cinema hoping for some kind of blockbuster or, or you know, like a yeah. superpower mongoose in the island, You'd Man, be disappointed. 
You would be disappointed, yeah. But if this was on a Sunday afternoon and you were stuck at home because it was wet outside and you just wanted something on to be entertaining or diverting, mm-hmm. something to make you think a little bit. Gentle is the word often ascribed to this kind of movie, isn't it? Yeah. Like I say, it delivered way more than I was expecting, so... I mean, I've got to give it an eight, I think. I'm going seven on plot. It was great. Okay. I would say there's just one thing, is that, given the subject matter, okay, I think you have to head towards whimsical weirdness, and there wasn't enough of that around. No, there wasn't. No. They stuck fairly close to the story. I believe that Nando Fodo did not experience anything that gave him any any thought that there might be a a a talking mongoose. And the general opinion of the parapsychologists of the day, and of course since, was that it was indeed a hoax. I mean, it, it's so obviously telegraphed that Vori was almost certainly a ventriloquist in the house, and yeah. indeed in the box, isn't it? That it's, it's an inescapable conclusion. Yeah, I guess for truthiness, maybe that's our next category. I think we have to give it no more than a five, perhaps? Maybe a six. I don't know. I don't know the real backstory, but I'm going to give it a six. Your truthiness isn't truth, is it? Because we could never know the real truth. Any other categories, Paul? I don't know. It's difficult to say how else to score it. Can we just go to a final score, I think, on this? Yeah, well, let's do a gestalt. I think this is a seven, just because it's not wildly exciting. Yeah, no, I mean, this is stronger than the reception it's had of critics, which has been fairly weak. Audiences do like it, however. Tepid. Audiences yep. like it, you know. Uh, relatively warm reception for audiences. So I'm going to score it 7-2. And I think it's good sort of sceptic history as well, so worth it even for the sceptics who might be slightly annoyed by it. Paul, <gasps> yes. I want you to give me a clutch of movies and I will choose one. Okay, now I, I did write them out again. I've written them twice because I can't read my own writing. Uh, the first one is some exotic Europeanica, okay, or things from Europe, which is called Bang Gang. Bang gang. I hope it's sexy. Two, standard weird fodder from us. We are not alone. We are not alone. Okay. Three, and correct me if I've said this wrong, Perfect Guide to Ideology. I think that's a documentary, which you might be dismayed to learn, I think, is about two hours long. Does it include one of our favourite documentary makers? Potentially. It's Zizak, I think. I think oh, that's how you his name. Uh, well philosopher. Okay. And finally, The Final Girls. Which is a horror movie. Now, I know from but comments you made I think. It's a horror movie in a horror movie set or something like that, I think. I think it's a comedy horror, yeah. Right. What are you doing to me here? I think... All kinds of nonsense. I don't think we've got to the Constitution right now for a two-hour-long Zizak documentary. Correct. I'm glad I put it on so you could discount it. I don't think there's any way of seeing we on... I'm guiding you to my, decision, my, my wanted decision, just like Darren Brown would do. <laughs> I don't think there's any way of seeing We Are Not Alone on our oh, streaming God. services. So I'm going to knock that on the head for the moment. Down to two. What's it going to be? Down to two. I mean, I am keen on the final goals, but I'm painfully aware that you may be horror movied out. So I'm going to go for a European, hopefully wankfest, bang game. <laughs> That'll be some light relief, won't it? Here we go. Towards full armpit hair and all kinds of Europe, Europe, Europa There we go, Europa Okay, like Americana but weirder. This has been an epic. Thank you for listening. It has indeed. And until the next time, series four, episode seventeen. Bye for now. Ciao for now. See you in the next one.